Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations brought to you by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today we continue our journey into the spooky month of October by talking with author Ed Macy. Ed knows all about the history of the Holy City, also known as Charleston, South Carolina, and that includes its spooky tales. Ed is a lifelong Charleston resident. Ed, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Johnny. Good morning. Good morning. Ed, have you always been interested in history? Oh, yeah. Since I was a little wee lad, man. I used to like World War II and World War I history when I was very young. But as I got older, I started to love local history, you know, the Civil War. But uh, even more so the American Revolution, which people forget about how much happened in the low country during the Revolution. Yes. You know, that's what... Man, me and you were on the same page about that because it seems like because I used to be a tour guide here in Charleston too. Um, I used to do tours for Drayton Hall when I used to work for them, educational tours downtown. And yeah. yeah, and I would a big part of my tour if I was doing house tours at Drayton Hall or I really like to talk about it downtown on tours downtown was how much revolutionary war history because the whole, especially the northern part of the peninsula, is a revolutionary war battlefield. And people mm-hmm. come to Charleston thinking uh, Civil War history, and they don't realize how important Charleston was, or Charlestown then, was to the Revolutionary War. And they just kind of uh, paint over that, I feel like. Um, because you even, especially today, so much is focused on Civil War history in Charleston. So, man, yeah. Uh, I'm, you know why, man? Yeah, and you know why it's glossed over or painted over is because to the victors go the spoils. When the when the North won the war between the states, you get years later the Boston and the Manhattan perspective on publishing. But it, one of my favorite facts about where we live, more blood was spilled in the Low Country than all the other colonies combined in mm-hmm. regards to fight for independence. Yeah, more battles and skirmishes in the Palmetto State than anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, Ed, I'm going to buy you a beer when all this stuff's over, man. We're going to sit down. Good. I'd love it. I'd love it. Yeah. Oh, man, already. So and another thing, what you said about the love for history, when I ask this question to other people, it always starts off with World War II, uh, that you know, interest in World War II. And maybe it was with movies when we were growing up and stuff. That you know, Yeah. And there's so much, yeah. There were so many, there also were a lot of World War II veterans left when we were kids too that we could talk to about that history. Yeah, I'm 53. So, I mean, when I was a little kid, there were a ton of World War II veterans, including my grandfather. One of my grandfathers was a World War One veteran, believe wow. it or not. And they were bad, man. And, you know, but yeah, movies has a lot to do with it. Um, even toys like Navarone, man, it was a big wooden plastic rock made by Mattel. Where you had <laughs> wow. German soldiers and American soldiers fighting each other. And I mean, that was one of my favorite toys when I was a kid. Man, can we, think about that as a plastic rock and just like, they're like, you know, let kids have this and they'll use their imagination. <laughs> that made money. <laughs> that's, it, that's great. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It worked. All right, so my next question was going to be, have you always been interested in Charleston history, and what about the city captured imagination? But I think we kind of covered that, man. But so I think we did, too. Man. What about, when, when did you start, what age was the Revolutionary War really getting into your mind? Do you remember? You know, I was, I was enthralled by two guys when I was a little kid outside of the World War II spectrum. It was Andrew Jackson and the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion. I mean, I remember writing a po- reports about both of those guys when I was in third, fourth, fifth grade. So single digits because, uh, you know, it was like guerrilla warfare that really made 
the American Revolution pop. You know, it was so much more dramatic and exciting than Napoleonic-style fighting. But also, I mean, if you ever read, I, I can't dig it up right now, but I'll find it for you and send it to you. But there's diaries from British soldiers who were trapped out on, on a la Palms in the 1780s, late 1770s. And it was like Vietnam for those guys, man. They were pinned down by gators and mosquitoes and snakes and Catawba sharpshooters on the other side of Breach Inlet under the command of uh, William Danger Thompson. And these guys, I mean, they were trapped out there. There were guys throwing themselves to their own death because of how miserable it was being trapped out there in the beginning of the you know, before they sieged Charleston. I knew those stories when I was a kid, too, and that always excited me about going to the islands. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned William Danger Thompson, and, you know, we're so lucky here because of how many lectures we have that we can attend because of the first time I've heard, and that that name automatically captures your imagination because Danger is kind of his middle name, even though it's a nickname. And I went to, I remember it was a, it was a Palmetto or Carolina Day, rather, one year, and they were talking about, you know, everybody always focuses on what happened we're at Fort Sullivan, which is now the Fort Moultrie, or where the original fort was on that end that day. But they don't talk about what happened at Breaches Inlet, where William oh, Danger Thompson held them off. And that's yeah. that's an intense story, because that's where General Clinton, who later would siege Charleston in 1780, but four years earlier in 1776, you know, he's being held off by... Uh, these these mountain men who are with Danger Thompson, and it's just like an enthralling tale. And you had what Moultrie oh, riding man. back and forth on Sullivan's I've Island. Thought, I always thought that and the life story of Osceola would make the most killer movies, uh, the most adventuresome Hollywood big action epics ever made. You made a story yes. about that. Sullivan's Island and Isle of Palms back in the 1700s and the early 1800s when Osceola was captured. I mean, Osceola's life story is just as, when I hear his name, it's like hearing Danger Thompson's name, mm-hmm. man. It's like, I immediately spring to attention. <laughs> He's like the American Braveheart, I think, like Osceola. Yeah, very much so, man. Very much so. He got a raw deal from the government. But, uh, I mean, his name alone, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a long time, but his name meant something like uh, Black Bark Black Barker, because he would eat this bark that sent him into this emetic rage where he would defecate and vomit and just get jacked up and go into combat, and it made him like an animal. I mean, he was a wild man, Um, and it made him the fiercest and most revered warrior of some of the early indigenous people, and that's why they wanted him so bad. Yeah, I just looked it up, and it says it's an Anglicanized form of the creek, and it's a combination of... uh, Asi, the ceremonial black drink made from the Yapan holly, and it means shout or shouter. So yeah, yeah, you're on it, man. I mean, he would just get, he would just release all the toxins from his body, and then just be just this wire, you know, this live wire ready to fight. Uh, You probably have heard this too, man. The the doctor that did the autopsy on Osceola kept his head, and. Wound up using it to frighten his grandkids or his children when they wouldn't go to sleep. I don't remember the guy's name. I want to say Woodward, but I think he that's would it, yeah. Carry, and you take him back to New York, right? Family. Yeah, I mean it's still in the family. Some some dude has Osceola's head in a box in an attic somewhere, which is 
little disrespectful, but also nuts and a great artifact to pass down to the next generation. Yeah, or we could bring it back to Fort Moultrie and reunite it with Osceola. Oh, man, I know. That's the I second know. week in a row Osceola's come up on the podcast. He came up last week with Haunted History of Pasco County. Oh, yeah, of course, man. Osceola should come up during every podcast. Yeah, he could. You know, if we could go back, if we were going to do a, if a movie was going to be made about Sullivan's Island, uh, we would, of course, you know, the British are the main protagonist, but we would also have to make Charles Lee a bad guy, I think, in that movie, too. Of course. So, Absolutely. Man. Absolutely. I mean, to have somebody like that die from a disease called Quimby, <laughs> it just doesn't seem appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I could think of a few other ways. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, this. Uh, I worked at a funeral home when I was a kid, and uh, we were, a few years before I started working there, they actually did the disinterment and the reburial of Osceola there in front of Fort Moultrie. And I always would wish I'd been around to see that. Uh, that would have been sort of the highlight of my career working in the funeral business, but uh, I missed it, but I saw the pictures later. Yeah, I mean, so you can confirm there's not a head there because there's people who still say that there is one. You know, I've heard people say, no, that's just a myth. So I'm like, no, pretty sure it's not. You know, when I argue with them. Yeah. (laughs) I can promise you it's not there. (laughs) Uh, People just like to argue, though, nowadays anyway. So, oh, wow. You know, hey, Ed, what about the sea that we love and we live in? You know, it lends itself to ghost stories. Because uh, we have all this stuff, and we just talked about, man, me and you have been talking already for almost 10 minutes. Uh, 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 we just jumped right into it. What about this area lends itself to ghost stories? I mean, we just talked about all this amazing stuff that's happened. Uh, and it feels like there is some sort of spirituality here, this unexplainable. I mean, I've been all over the place. I'm sure you've been all over the place. But there's something yeah. here when you, I mean, this is home, and mm-hmm. when you come back here, there's just something here that as a feeling that you don't get anywhere else. What is that? You know, when I, Johnny, when I do a ghost tour, I always tell people I'm not a psychic. I'm not a scientist and I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm somebody who loves history. And to give you an answer from that vantage point, uh, I've always thought, and this is not just something I made up. I've heard this from other people that the spirit world sort of crystallizes around what they're familiar with. And, you know this as well as I do. There's more buildings. I mean, there's 5,000 buildings in Charleston that look like they looked in the 19th, 18th, and even 17th centuries. So uh, the fact that it wasn't boiled over, made into a parking lot, or ripped down and turned into high-rises, I, I think the architecture has a lot to do with it. I really do. Um, I think also, too, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of crazy stuff happen from war to earthquake to hurricanes to fires. So when you tie in that violence to the fact that the city did have somehow remain the same, I mean, Trad Street, there's blocks of it that look like it looked in the 1750s. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that's part of it. Yeah. You know, when you think about like something like residual hauntings, man, and that's where something just plays itself over and over again. And I try to explain it. I remember I was trying to explain something like that to my wife. I'm like, that could just be something as simple because, you know, when the first record was made, all it was was a pin on wax making indentions. And you go back yeah. and you play that again. I'm like, why couldn't that just be something where something traumatic or something as simple as somebody walking past a wall happened? 
And if you had those yeah. same conditions again, why couldn't that just be placed? Somebody walking past in 18th century, 17th century clothing past a brick wall, you could see something again. If those same environmental conditions were right. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, there's a lot of people that say, oh, there's no such thing as ghosts. But man, you meet 50 people, or in the case of Pugin's Porch, 500 people who've seen the same thing over and over again. They're not making that stuff up. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the Einsteinian theory of energy never dissipating lends itself to what you're talking about. The fact that, you know, these, this energy is still moving in that same motion that it moved in the 1750s or 60s, and we're seeing it like a record group bouncing an echo back yeah. to us from the past. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I'm down with that theory is what I'm saying. So many people have seen... Yeah, like Pugin's Porch. It's... There's people who, like I've talked to, who who don't know that story, who have you know seen oh, things, no. who have been at Mills, well, like, who oh, have yeah, been at the Mills Hotel. The yeah, there's like a little dog that haunts the place. I'm like, maybe, but there's also an old spinster school marm that wanders around yeah. and has seen five hundred plus times in the bathroom, which is creepy in and of itself. <laughs> Absolutely, it's very very unsettling. I'm sure if you're in that bathroom. Yeah. Do you remember the first ghost story you ever heard about Charleston? Yes, Gray Man, when I was about six years old. And it's not really a Charleston ghost story, but <clears throat> I remember hearing it from my mom. I don't know. She either had a standalone book or it was in, like, uh, Charleston Ghosts from the 50s. My mom read it to me when I was a little kid back in the 70s. And it always stuck with me. And it always, I think it was not really frightened by the ghost as much as the prospect of a hurricane being so powerful. Yeah. You know? I remember being afraid and at this time I was so I was a kid and I was staying with my grandmother and I was you know 300 or something miles away in a place called Brooks Georgia at this time but the weatherman out of Atlanta said this thing's a monster and it scared me because I'm 38 37 years old so I was five when Hurricane Hugo happened, but I was with my grandparents in Georgia. And yeah. the weatherman said, this thing's a monster. And I just heard the word monster and it scared me. And I refused to go to sleep because I thought, wow, so this thing's really big. It could come over to Griffin and get me because I thought it was a real monster. But it was. It was, man. The, the guy wasn't lying. I mean, it was a beast out of the Atlantic for sure. Uh, there, it's just uh, then you you saw the pictures the next day and I was like, well, that monster really could have come got me. And I didn't. I was way over in Georgia and I was thinking like that thing could have you know come over here. <laughs> it was just you know that lives in your mind. Uh, yeah, that monster no boundaries as far as state lines go, man. For sure. I mean, people in Charlotte woke up the next day to you know what the heck happened. You know, yeah. so it could have easily made its way into the uh, Peach State. It's something to take serious. It's something to take real serious. Those things. So, yeah. have you ever had something unexplainable happen on one of your tours? Uh, nothing that would follow into the supernatural. I mean, I've had the over 26, 27 years of being a tour guide. I've had, you know, drunken rednecks and uh, <laughs> hobos assaulting my group verbally. But no, I mean, as far as uh, I've had a lot of people claim to see things, but I'm very skeptical and i'll be honest yeah. i think tell a good ghost story you got to be a little skeptical if everybody sees a ghost nobody sees a ghost so it's one of those situations where i've had a lot of people say they've seen things and 
every once in a while, I'm like, God, that rings true. That's exactly what they should have seen. So I don't know if they knew beforehand what was going on from reading or if it was legitimate, somebody that had what Hollywood calls the sixth sense. But, you know, that's happened, of course, many, many times over the years. But as far as myself, no. Unfortunately, I think I'm I'm out of the loop in regards to experience anything like that. I'd love to, but I don't think I ever will. Yeah, at least you're open to open-minded, so you never know. I am open-minded, but I think when you're looking for it or you know about it, somehow it casts something in front of you, a wall, a barrier, where it's not going to happen. I think, you know who I think sees a ghost? People who have that sixth sense or somebody that's thinking about breakfast. I think when you go out into a graveyard or into a house looking for something, you're wasting your time and you're wasting your film. Yeah. Yeah, if you're too eager to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing with going fishing, I feel like, sometimes. Yeah. So your you know, your stories are now in a children's book, um, stories that are based on yours. So you're capturing the imagination of a whole new generation. Uh, that's got to be exciting. I hope so, man. I, um, uh, I hope that it'll get little kids into reading a good story without confusing them or scaring them. And the way that the Spooky America book about Charleston was done was cool because it brought it down to the basic fundamentals of the ghost story. And I've always thought that when you tell a ghost story, there's two parts. There's what happened to the person and then there's the haunting. And traditionally the best way to do it I've found is to make the most exciting part come last, you know, because sometimes the ghost, what it does is mundane, like walking down the street. But what happened to that person is more interesting and that should come second. And I think when the book was written, they kind of kept the pattern that that was originally in Haunted Charleston, the book from which it's born from. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, so let me ask you a question. Favorite building in the city? Do you got one? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, Dock Street Theater, the Circular Congregational Church, and the old Connolly Funeral Home near the intersection of Meeting and Calhoun, architecturally or well, not architecturally. The Dock Street's not architecturally my favorite, but I, I just, as far as what went on behind those walls on that on that corner, basically since 1736. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that's where the heavy hitters convened right there for the most part. And uh, and they, 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 man, I wish you wouldn't ask me that because now I'm going to double check myself later and be like, damn it, <laughs> I should have said that. But um. Yeah, I mean, if I had to choose a building to save, the Dock Street Theater would be very, very at the top of my list. Yeah, that's a great one. That would have been that probably would have been one of mine. Uh, I really like the Powder Magazine because I've you know I volunteer with them when and the Charlestown yeah. Battery of Artillery. Um, of course, the old Exchange is always going to be one of mine too, just because yeah. of how much history's happened on that second floor above the arcade. Yeah, oh God, yeah, and also in the dungeon. Uh, you know, as always, you know, two of my go-tos there too. Um, just in St. Michael's for the steeple too, and how much history you know happened in that steeple. Especially, you know, I've, I did a a lot of research on the Timothy family. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's the the steeple alone has a lot of you know interest for Let me. Let me tell you so. a story about St. Michael's. You got time for a quick story about St. Michael's? Of course. I met a guy one time, I was given a tour, and I met this guy who said the whole reason he was coming to Charleston was to write a book about 
Frank Sutton, the guy who played, you're going to laugh when you hear this, the guy who played Sergeant Carter on Gomer Pyle. And the thesis of his book was that Frank Sutton showed up at St. Michael's Church while on vacation wearing a suit. And that, that, you know, a famous guy showing up wearing a suit is what inspired people to start dressing up to go to church. I've never heard a more far-fetched bit of lunacy in my life. But this guy, either he was the world's greatest straight face or he was an absolute maniac because that was his thesis of his book. But the guy Sergeant Carter inspired ties and suits to be worn to church because of St. Michael's. Wow. No, I don't know. But, uh, I'll never forget that. He was serious as a heart attack. Well, best of luck, too. <laughs> I'm sure that book. <laughs> Basically. Oh, man. It was a hometown bestseller, maybe, on a street. <laughs> <laughs> if that, maybe the cul-de-sac. I'm not maybe. sure. Maybe. <clears throat> oh, my God. All right, so, Ed, so we've mentioned a yep. couple of times, you're a tour guide here. I want to give you a plug. Yep. So if folks are visiting Charleston, they want to take a tour with you, how, how can they find you and reach out to you? I've got a webpage, edmacytours.com, and my last name is M-A-C-Y, like the department store. And, you know, Johnny, I've been, for the last couple of years, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of private tours where, you know, I take people around just by themselves. Um, kind of graduated up to that point. But I still do group ghost tours all the time, especially in October. So, yeah, Ed Macy Tours, uh, M-A-C-Y is my last name, and all my contact information is on that page. Yeah, and you do more than just ghost tours, too. So it's right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do history tours. I do uh, Revolutionary War tours. You name it. I mean, Gullah, anything that's anything people are interested in. But, you know, a lot of times people are like, we want to do a ghost tour, but make sure you incorporate the history. I'm like, dude, I have to. The history is complete backbone for all the ghost yep. stories, you know? So they wind up bleeding over for the most part. I mean, if I give a tour, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about everything, basically. That's amazing. Ed, Except thanks. Except the guy who played Carter. Except for the what? Except for the guy who played Sergeant Carter. I'm not going to bring him up on a tour. <laughs> well, no. I mean, how else are people going to know what they're supposed to wear to church if you don't? Though? True. True. Ed, thanks for being on, man. It's been great. Johnny, you're very welcome, man. Thank you for having me, and uh, good luck. Call me if you need anything, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks to you, the audience, for joining us. You can find Ed's books, The Ghostly Tales of Charleston, Haunted Charleston, and Haunted Harbor online at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever books are sold. I would like to thank, as always, Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the podcast theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you next week when we explore more haunted history.